Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 20. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Today we come to the important question of the justice of penal substitution. We've already dealt with an objection to the coherence of penal substitution and saw that that objection was really quite weak. But today is the biggie. This is the fundamental objection that is raised again and again to penal substitution. That uh, to punish Christ uh, in our place would be unjust on the part of God. And so we're raising here the question of what justification there is for uh, God's punishing Christ. Now, one's justification will be determined by one's overarching theory of justice. We've alluded to this in the past, and let me recap that. Theories of justice can be classified as broadly retributive or consequentialist. Retributive theories versus consequentialist theories of justice. Retributive theories of justice hold that punishment is justified because the guilty deserve punishment. The guilty deserve to be punished. By contrast, consequentialist theories of punishment hold that punishment is justified because of the extrinsic goods that can be realized through punishment. For example, the deterrence of crime or the isolation of dangerous persons from society at large or the reformation of criminals to help them become uh, law-abiding citizens. Retributive theories are often said to be retrospective theories of justice. They impose punishment for crimes that have been committed, whereas consequentialist theories of justice are prospective. That is to say they aim to prevent future crimes from being committed by punishment through deterrence, isolation of the criminal, or reformation of the criminal. They prospectively try to reduce um, crime. Now with those two broad types of theories of justice in mind, let's look at the alleged injustice of penal substitution. Critics of penal substitution typically assert that God's punishing Christ in our place would be an injustice on God's part. For it is an axiom of retributive justice that it is unjust to punish an innocent person. It is unjust to punish an innocent person. But Christ was an innocent person. And since God is perfectly just, he cannot therefore have punished Christ. Now notice that it would do no good to say, but Christ voluntarily or willingly undertook this self-sacrifice on our part, because the nobility of his selfless act wouldn't do anything to 
uh, annul the injustice of punishing an innocent person for crimes that he did not commit. Now, just as I was able to formulate the objection to the coherence of penal substitution in a brief argument that made its premises very clear, I've tried to do the same thing with this argument against the justice of penal substitution. And by the way, if you're dealing with arguments uh, against the Christian faith, it's very helpful, I find, to sit down and try to put them in the form of logical premises leading to a conclusion. Uh, that helps you understand exactly what is at stake and um, where the argument might be vulnerable. Now, of course, when you formulate the argument, you always have to try to do it in a sympathetic way. You don't try to formulate the objector's argument in such a way that it's obviously invalid. You give him the benefit of a doubt and try to formulate the argument as best you can. And it seems to me that this is the way the argument against the justice of penal substitution goes. Number one, God is perfectly just. Two, but if God is perfectly just, he cannot punish an innocent person. From that it follows three, therefore God cannot punish an innocent person. If God is perfectly just, uh, and if God is perfectly just, he cannot punish an innocent person, it follows that God cannot punish an innocent person. Four, but Christ was an innocent person from which it follows five, therefore God cannot punish Christ. And um, six is if God cannot punish Christ, then penal substitution is false. So once again we have a chain of inferences that would show that if God is perfectly just, then penal substitution is false. So this seems to me to be a formulation of the argument. God is perfectly just. If God is perfectly just, he cannot punish an innocent person. Therefore, God cannot punish an innocent person. Christ was an innocent person. Therefore, God cannot punish Christ. And if God cannot punish Christ, then penal substitution is false. Now, as we saw with the objection to the coherence of penal substitution, a penal substitution theorist who does not believe that God punished Christ would be unfazed by this argument um, because he would disagree that if God cannot punish Christ, penal substitution is false. Remember we saw that some defenders of penal substitution maintain that God did not in fact punish Christ. Rather, he inflicted Christ with the suffering, which was our just desert, and so would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us instead. God did not punish Christ, but he inflicted Christ with the suffering that would have been our punishment if we had borne it instead. And so these theorists might actually welcome an argument like this uh, in favor of their view that penal substitution is true, but God did not punish Christ. So like the last argument, if you hold to a theory of penal substitution that denies that God punished Christ, you will be completely unfazed by this objection to penal substitution.
But suppose that we think, with I, I would say the majority of penal substitution theorists, that God did in fact punish Christ in our place. Suppose you agree uh, to that. Well, then that raises the question of premises one and two. Um, what does it mean to say that God is perfectly just? Uh, and is it true that if God is perfectly just, he cannot punish an innocent person? Well, one very quick and easy way to dispense with this argument would be to adopt a consequentialist theory of justice. It is common coin among um, legal theorists that a consequentialist theory of justice could lead to justifying the punishment of the innocent. For example, it might be justified to punish an innocent person because of the great deterrence value that would have in preventing future crime. In fact, one of the main criticisms of consequentialist theories of justice is that they can justify the punishment of the innocent. So if you're a penal substitution theorist who is a consequentialist, it would be very easy to provide consequentialist justification for God's punishing Christ. Namely, doing so would save the entire human race from destruction. And you can't think of a much better consequence than that. So if you're a consequentialist, you can affirm that God is perfectly just, but it would not follow from his perfect justice that he could not punish an innocent person. But as I've said in uh, previous classes, it seems that consequentialism is ill-suited to be a basis for divine punishment, biblically speaking, because God's judgment is described in the Bible as ultimately eschatological. That is to say, it is the judgment that takes place on the final day of judgment at the end of human history. The Bible says that the ungodly are storing up wrath for themselves on God's final day of judgment, Romans 2.5. And punishment imposed at that point could seem to serve no other purpose than retribution. Um, it's too late to have any beneficial consequences by that point. Now, I suppose the Christian consequentialist could say that um, there is a consequentialist justification uh, on the judgment day, namely by isolating the wicked in hell, you prevent them from infiltrating or infecting the community of the redeemed uh, in the same way that hardened criminals are isolated in prison to prevent them from um, infecting uh, society at large. But I don't think that's a very good justification on consequentialism because God could achieve that end of protecting the redeemed simply by annihilating the damned. Um, so the consequentialist would need to find some further consequentialist reason for keeping the damned in existence and continuing to punish them um, apart from retribution. So I don't think consequentialism is a theory of justice that is well suited to the biblical conception of 
God and his justice. And in any case, the Bible is very explicit in affirming that the wicked deserve punishment. And that is the heart of a retributive theory of justice, that punishment is justified because the wicked deserve to be punished. Romans 1.32 says, those who do such things deserve to die. That is a retributive theory of justice. Or Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God? There the author of Hebrews says that someone who has spurned Christ deserves punishment. So it seems to me that retributive justice must be in large measure the justification for divine punishment. God's justice must be in some very significant measure retributive in nature. Now during the first half of the 20th century, under the influence of psychologists and social scientists, retributive theories of justice were um, widely frowned upon uh, in favor of consequentialist theories of justice. Fortunately, however, there has been over the last century a renaissance of theories of retributive justice among legal theorists, and this has been accompanied by a drastic waning of consequentialist theories of justice. So we don't need to be distracted uh, in our lesson with the need to try to justify a retributive theory of justice. The person who holds to a biblical retributive theory of justice is right in line with mainstream legal theory of justice today in thinking of justice as retributive. Now this change uh, in the legal community is due in no small part to the unwelcome implication of consequentialism that there are circumstances under which it is, it is just to punish the innocent. It's precisely because of that that consequentialism has been rejected. But uh, the conviction that the innocent ought not to be punished is what lies behind the claim that penal substitution would be unjust on God's part. So what is given with one hand is taken back with the other. On the one hand, legal theory has vindicated a retributive theory of justice uh, in line with biblical thinking about God's justice, a very welcome development. But on the other hand, it is precisely retributive justice that holds that the innocent ought not to be punished, and hence, for the retributivist, um, this objection to penal substitution arises in spades. Now, before we look at responses to the alleged injustice of penal substitution, let me ask if there's any question or discussion about these competing theories of justice and how these would impact your um, acceptance of this argument or not. Taiwan. Dr. Craig, I think the key is that God does not uphold justice with punishment, but he infused righteousness to the wicked. And Christ, the penal substitution, is Christ's willingness to 
go that route instead of dealing with punishment. Well, now let me interrupt here, Tiwan. Do you agree that the New Testament teaches the doctrine of hell, that those who reject God's grace and refuse his righteousness will be punished in hell? I do agree, but it is, I think that is the nature of God's law being violated and then there yes. will be there will be natural or divine consequences of that. All right. Now let, let's Taiwan is actually hitting a very subtle point here that is worth bringing to the surface. Is death and separation from God simply the consequence of sin or is it the punishment for sin? Now hang on. Some, some people would want to get around saying that God punishes the wicked by just saying, no, their uh, abandonment by God or their spiritual separation from God is just a consequence of sin, but it's not really a punishment for sin. And as I read the New Testament, it is inadequate to say that death and hell are merely consequences of sin. These are punishments, and they are called punishment in the New Testament, as you heard from the book of Hebrews. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God? So it seems to me that the New Testament clearly affirms that the, the harsh treatment that befalls the wicked at God's hands is his punishment of them for their sins. And moreover, that this is retributive punishment. They deserve this uh, as wicked persons, and therefore uh, God is just in imposing this harsh treatment on them. Uh, Dr. Gray, I think both, they are not, um, both stands because to me, death is when one rejects life. <laughs> and then they enter into death by their own choice because they reject life. Yes. I, I'm happy with that, Tiwan. I think we can say this doesn't need to be an either or. Right. That these that these are both consequences of sin and they are also punishments for sin. I don't have any problem with saying this is a both and. Steve? In a similar manner, both uh, retributive and consequential could be true too. Yeah, Steve is right about that. Um, this may not need to be an either or choice either. You could have theories of justice that blend consequentialist and retributive considerations. And that was why I couched my words with some caution. I said that God's justice must be in some significant measure retributive. Uh, and that seems to me to be required by the New Testament. Bruce. To, your, to that last point, to put them both together, Hebrews 2.9 says uh, Christ tasted death for every person. Mm -hmm. So if separation is the ultimate penalty and consequence of sin, yes. Christ suffered what it was like to be separated from God for all time in a moment of time for everyone. That's why he needed to be God, so he could do it for everybody in a moment of time mm -hmm. for all time. But yet the Son will never be permanently separated from the Father. So he can... He's uniquely positioned to do what he did. Yes. Yes. I would agree with that. That's a point that you remember Anselm made, um, and I think that's 
absolutely correct. Any other question, comment? Don? It's more a comment than anything else, but Jesus, when he was referring to Judas, he said it would be better for that one if he had never been born. Yes. That indicates something more than just eternal separation as a natural consequence. Something else was coming down that was going to really impact him in a bad way. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't go any further. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but if you think about what it really means to be separated from God, from all that is good and lovely, uh, to be left with your own crabbed, selfish, sinful heart forever, that's pretty tortuous. Uh, so I, don't, I wouldn't minimize the anguish and the horror of separation from God. Was there a question over on this side? Yes, Michelle. I was just wondering if you could restate the verse references uh, from the New Testament in regards to the retributive theory. Yes, the first one was Romans 132, where Paul, after listing this catalog of human sins, says, those who do such things deserve to die. That's Romans 132. And then the Hebrews passage was Hebrews 10.29 where he's referring specifically to people who reject Christ. All right, now how might we respond uh, to this argument? Well, first, an assessment of this objection requires that we contextualize it within a, a, a theory about the grounding of objective moral values and duties. Who, after all, determines what is just and unjust. We can all agree that God is perfectly just, but who determines what is just or unjust? The proponents of penal substitution that we've surveyed, um, like St. Anselm, were all proponents of some sort of divine command theory of ethics, according to which moral duties are determined by God's commands. There is no external law hanging over God to which he has to conform. And since God doesn't issue commands to himself as to what he has to do, it would follow that he literally has no moral duties to perform. So he can act in any way he wants, as long as it's consistent with his own nature. He doesn't have the moral duties that we have, and so he will have unique prerogatives that we human beings do not share. For example, giving and taking human life as he wills. It would be unjust if someone were to pull a gun out of his briefcase and kill me. But if God wants to strike me dead right now, that's his prerogative. Uh, all life is his, and he gives and takes it as he chooses. He has no duty to prolong our lives one second further. Now, in many cases, God may act in accordance with duty. He may go along with what we do out of duty, but he doesn't act from duty. He can act in accordance with duty, but he doesn't act from duty because he doesn't have any moral duties. He can make exceptions to the rule if he wants to. And I think this is the lesson of the astonishing story 
of his command to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar as a sacrificial offering to God. That story is found in Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19. God commands Abraham to do an act which, in the absence of a divine command, would have been murder. It would have been a horrible uh, sin if Abraham had, on his own initiative, taken his son Isaac and tried to offer him as a sacrificial offering to God. But given a divine command, it now becomes Abraham's duty to do this. So that God has the ability to command an act which, in the absence of a divine command, would have been sin, like murder. And I think this shows how radical God's prerogatives are. Uh, when we say it's unjust of God to do this and that, who are you to say that? Uh, it's God himself who determines what is just and unjust. Now, if that sort of theory of ethics is coherent, uh, as I've argued that it is, when we looked at the goodness of God and we talked about moral values and duties, where are these grounded? Where do objective moral values and duties come from? Look at that section of the defender's class uh, where I've defended this view. If this uh, uh, theory is coherent, then this present objection to penal substitution has difficulty even getting off of the ground. Um, as Hugo Grotius observed, even if God has established a human system of justice, uh, which forbids the punishment of the innocent, and hence substitutionary punishment. He himself isn't so forbidden. He can forbid human beings to punish the innocent or to have substitutes, but he's not forbidden from doing that. In the book of Exodus, you may remember the story of God's anger burning against the people of Israel for their idolatry. And Moses says, Lord, take my life in place of these people. Kill me instead of punishing these people to make atonement for their sin. The word atonement is actually used. Moses is offering substitutionary atonement to the Lord. And God refuses Moses' offer. He says, no, uh, I will require this sin from their own hand at some future time. I will punish them for what they've done. He refuses Moses' offer to be a substitutionary atonement. In the same way, he refused Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac as an offering to him. He commanded it, but then remember he stopped Abraham before it could be carried out. So um, God has refused to allow human beings to um, punish the innocent, to uh, do substitutionary punishment. But if it's God's will to take on human nature himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and to give his own life as a sacrificial offering for sin, who is to forbid him? Who forbids God from doing this? He's free to do so as long as it's consistent with his own nature. And what could be more consistent with God's gracious nature than that he should condescend to take on our frail and fallen humanity and to give his own life to pay the penalty 
which his own justice had exacted. This self-giving sacrifice of Christ, I think, exalts the nature of God by displaying his holy love. His holy love, both his holiness, his justice, as well as his love and mercy. Any response to that um, way of responding to the objection? Cindy. In essence, uh, what I was thinking, too, when you put this on the board and you put down, God cannot punish an innocent person, my thought was, well, why not, you know, yeah. if, if he chooses? I mean, in Job one twenty one, he said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Praise be the name of the Lord. So I guess that's just really your point is mm -hmm. that whatever he determines is appropriate for his good and is appropriate, whether it's of human understanding or not. And I think that's important, it, bridging a little bit, but when good thing, bad things happen to good people, immediately one says that's just not just. Why would God do this? Mm -hmm. Take away the life of a child or whatever. And it's, it's something that in our own human understanding we cannot, I think, fully grasp. And then it has to go on faith. Because what God sees is just and right and appropriate. Maybe we're not even able to understand that. Yes. Now, just so that no one draws the wrong inference from what Cindy said, in the book of Job, Job's sufferings are not presented as punishments from God. That's what Job's friends think, that Job has committed some sin and therefore he's being punished by God. Cindy wasn't saying that. Uh, and we shouldn't uh, misunderstand her point that the sovereign God is himself the source of moral duties and hence determines what is just or unjust. In which case this objection can't even get started. Yes, over here. I'm not sure like how serious this is, but it seems that kind of following a pure divine command theory of ethics, it seems like if our moral duties are entirely founded on God's moral commands, then what's the need for, I guess, Christ's sacrifice in the first place? Could he just have made the commands less serious? Or why couldn't he just forgive us if the only problem was his original command? Does that make sense? Yes, it's not I think so, yes. Solid, and I, I, we will say more about that in the future. He's saying that if God determines that it's just to pardon everyone right. without requiring Christ's death, then he could have chosen to do that as well. Now, it might surprise you that a good number of prominent Christian theologians have held that. Uh, for example, this is Thomas Aquinas' view, as well as the views of most of the church fathers. They, they would say, yes, God could have simply chosen to pardon our sins, but he chose to do it through Christ because he had good reasons for doing it that way. It was more, more suitable. Hugo Grotius is an example of a penal substitution theorist who also thought that it wasn't necessary to satisfy divine justice in order for God to pardon our sins. But he says God chose to do it that way to give us a stark example of his hatred of sin, of how horrid and detestable it is, as well as his tremendous love in 
embracing this sacrificial suffering, this incomprehensible suffering, on our behalf in order to save us. So Grotius would say, although God could have simply pardoned us, he chose to do it this way because of the great example of God's holiness and love that the passion of Christ displays. Cash. Okay, so this is the theory that I uh, would have subscribed to as well, but I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I sort of have uh, realized that it seems to sort of conflict with the whole... um, uh, talking about the objective standards, uh, objective, uh, objectively being in God, that you know He has the highest moral standards, and then you got the euthyphro dilemma going on here. That is, that God willing yeah. something to be just, or is there an objective justice that is in Him that God could potentially basically overturn His own objective justice that is in Him? Like, is it objectively just in God to say, you know, okay, God can't punish the innocent in Him, and then He can just overturn this? You know, that seems to be the problem for me uh, with with the divine command theory. Okay, I think I understand what Cash is saying. And you have to understand the way philosophers work. Um, The Germans would call this hin und her. You kind of give and take. You know, it goes hin und her. And so I'm saying this is, this is a start here, a divine command theory of justice. Um, but what Cash and the other fellow here seem to suggest is that this seems to imply a sort of voluntarism on God's part. He could have decreed that hatred be good, and therefore it would be our moral duty to hate one another and seem and try to do each other wrong and harm, and that seems wrong. So that was why I said God has the ability to command anything so long as it is consistent with his own nature, his own loving, good nature. So suppose one who's pressing this objection wants to push it forward in the face of a divine command theory. What might he say? Well, I think what he might say is that uh, retributive justice is part of God's nature. And therefore, it is impossible that God act contrary to the principles of retributive justice. So um, that pushes the argument now forward a notch. God is free to command whatever he wants. Uh, so long as it's consistent with his own nature. But suppose one says that retributive justice is essential to God's nature. And that is, I think, what many Orthodox Christians believe and many penal substitution theorists believe. In that case, the objection then surfaces again. God cannot act contrary to the principles of retributive justice, because that would be acting contrary to his own nature. And so you're right back again to premise two. If God is perfectly just, then he cannot punish an innocent person, because that would be contrary to his nature, to the principles of retributive justice. Any question about that further move now in the, in the dialectic before we uh, wrap it up and and move on. Yes. Taiwan. Dr. Craig, can you explain um, when David sinned, God punished the people. He gave David choices and then he decided to punish the people for David's sin. 
Uh, can you give me I, more I'll specifics? I'll get your reference next time okay. I can't find it. Okay. There, there certainly are some stories in the Old Testament that make one squeamish with respect to retributive justice, where the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children and so forth. And one is inclined to be thinking in cases like that, Taiwan, perhaps of the consequences of sin rather than punishment for sin. Remember the distinction you made between consequences and punishment? And certainly the father's sins can have terrible consequences that might be visited upon the, the children. But yes, Steve, go ahead. Uh, yeah, the, uh, Taiwan is talking about David took the census and then God gave him three options of punishment. One, and he said, take it out on the people, and 35,000 people were killed I see. in the army, in his army. Okay. That's the example she's talking about. Yeah. The, okay, that would be one of these cases that would make you feel somewhat squeamish, but would make it more difficult for the objection to penal substitution to go through, biblically at least. I think probably what one might say in that case would be that these people punished are themselves sinners and deserve it. So it's not as though God was punishing innocent people for what David did. These were themselves also sinful uh, people, also deserving of punishment, and so they, they received it now in this lifetime rather than simply waiting till the end of the, the age. We need to wrap it up at this point now. So let's close with a word of prayer. And what we'll do when we come back next Sunday is I will then examine more closely the nature of retributive justice and ask what does it mean to say that retributive justice is essential to God's very nature? And I think we'll see that this is a much more nuanced question than what the opponent of penal substitution uh, thinks it is. So let's pray and draw to a close. Thank you, Father, for this time together in which we've been able to think of, of such important and stimulating questions. And we pray that as we go out into the week, you would strengthen our resolve to live lives that are holy and acceptable to you and bring praise and glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.